Hey, I'm Sarah. I'm the other co-pastor. I always think it's funny when we say, like, I'm the co-pastor. I'm the other one. Here I am. Great to see you. It's, uh, it's been fun trying to figure out what worship and singing song and how we do that, what that looks like. So thanks for trying to figure that out alongside us, as it's been a little complicated through COVID and figuring out sound, all the things. Uh, so this morning, we're going to go ahead and we are continuing on in the Advent series. So if you weren't with us last week, we're looking specifically at Mary's song. And what Kurt did is he talked all about in light of that passage in Luke about how we see Jesus coming. And with Jesus's message, he's bringing power with instead of power over. So this week, we're going to go ahead and we're going to look at that chunk again in Luke but today we're going to do it all through the lens of grief, uh, which is awesome. I didn't even know that all of Hannah's songs were going to do all that grief work, so it's really, really great. We had like the same thought there. But uh, what the hope is, and when the invitation I have for you this morning is to look at Scripture a little bit differently. So Kurt talked about this last week as well, but if you weren't here, I just want to kind of do like a little theology 101. So there's kind of two ways that we can read the Bible. Way number, uh, many ways, but we're going to look at two specifically, kind of an opposition, right? There's way one, and that's that, like, someone is writing, God is, like, literally speaking. I almost imagine a quill, which is, like, not really theologically correct, because there would have been lots of things there. But if you imagine this direct voice, someone's, like, literally writing what God's telling them to write, and that makes the Bible being perfectly and 100% true without error. That's kind of, like, one method how people read the Bible. And there's this other method that says perhaps there would have been some historical context which tells us that there would be something that we pass down from generation to generation that a scribe would have eventually recorded. And when you look at the text kind of in that way of looking at the Bible, it allows the text to perhaps have some human error within what we're reading. And it specifically kind of allows room and space for there to be real people with real motive behind why and what gets included. And so why that's really important to me this morning is specifically I want to look at this of why did Luke include Mary's song within the Bible? And then also what could it have been like for Mary to want that to be included? Because I think that the two may have different motive perhaps or different uh, experiences of what is happening. Right, because Mary, just as a reminder, is talking as a mom who has lost her son. Right, her baby's died. Her child has died. And if we're getting this in what I just explained to you, that we get this later, that perhaps Luke could have actually had this recorded and written down after the death of Jesus, I think it invites us to a more complex narrative around Mary and what would be her desire behind what she wanted to talk about her son versus if it's someone that just wrote this down and is like a prediction of what's going to happen. So I want to invite you to that. I don't know if you've been around someone that's just had a really, really hard diagnosis or has had kind of this moment where they have to grapple with life and death. Um, but from my experience that when someone gets a diagnosis that's terminal, they begin to look at their lives and try to figure out kind of like the heritage behind it, like the lineage. It's like they desperately want to understand a bigger story and then how they fit into that story and where they've come from. And it's almost like that person is desperately trying to put them into like the people that came before them and trying to answer the question of what comes after death, like what's next. And it's like they're trying to understand that from the lens of the people in their lives that have done it already. And then on the flip side, 
when you're the family member that's been around someone that just has gotten that really hard diagnosis or is trying to figure out life after death, you're asking the same question, right, which is what happens next, but what you're doing and how you're doing it looks a little different. I have this friend, uh, she lost her husband, and I remember her telling me about kind of the final hours of her husband's life. And I didn't, to be honest, understand this story until I was doing this with my dad. So if you've lost someone, I think the story means something different to you than if you haven't. But when she told me this story, uh, she talked about how she just wanted those final moments to be done. That losing someone was really scary. It's unpredictable. It's unknown terrain. You don't know exactly what's about to happen next when you're in that room. And so because you don't know that, it's like you're desperately just hoping, like, let's move through it so I can survive and make it. Right, but then once you've lost that person, it's like you automatically are desperate for that person to be back with you. And so it's like this obsession with looking at photos or anything that can take you back to knowing that person better. And so what I want you to do and why I'm trying to tell you that is I want to think about this morning, what does it look like to be on both sides of this conversation of when you're the person who's lost someone and what does grief do to us when we think about that from the perspective of Mary? And then also when someone's telling another person's grief narrative, how might that story change or evolve? And I want to give permission to the text this morning to do that. So if I could invite you, I'm going to read Luke 1, 39, and we're going to look at it specifically as a grieving mother and kind of let the text do what it's going to do. So Luke 1, 39, text should also be on the screen, perfect. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leapt for joy." And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. So I want to think about Luke. Let's think about Luke as a gospel and why this would be included for Luke versus why perhaps this would need to be included for Mary. So we know that early Jesus stories are found in both Matthew and Luke, and the versions of those stories and what's included is a little bit different. And if you've done any reading on New Testament and gospels and kind of what's included about life and teachings of Jesus and what's not, there's some different theories about if like the stories repeated that that makes it maybe more significant if it's not maybe it's less are they coming from one document that they're all pulling from there's a bunch of theories around why things are included and why are not that's not actually what i want to talk about at all what i want to look at is that luke's including this and matthew doesn't 
That's significant to me. And it also says to me that Luke, as the author, has a narrative that he's looking for that he wants to tell you in his story of why he's including it versus why Matthew doesn't. And Luke specifically is really wanting to talk about a virgin birth. And I think sometimes in kind of Christian circles, we forget that this is not our only virgin birth story, right? We assume that Jesus is the only virgin birth narrative that's roaming around, but in fact, that's not true, right? Caesar Augustus would have been a really important virgin birth narrative, and we know that that would have been roaming through kind of like stories. There's many virgin birth narratives that have been going around, and Caesar Augustus specifically would have been there to have power over, where Jesus does the opposite, right? Jesus is power with. This is what Kurt talked about last week. And so when we think about what's Luke's motive to including this, I think it's to show a power with story, including a virgin birth story. I think that's really what Luke's trying to do, would be my suggestion. On the other side, we have Mary. So as a female in church, right, I was always looking for, like, who's our interesting female that we're going to read about. You've got, like, Rahab, prostitute, not super relatable, but interesting, right? You've got Mary, she's going to have a baby at 14, also not relatable from my own individual story, right? There's just not been a lot of options for me where I'm like, who would I want to strive to be like? And Mary, specifically for me, I feel like is always the person that people want you to love because they're like, she's so young and she's having a baby. But when I would hear that in like elementary school and middle school and high school, I was like, this is terrifying. This is a teen pregnancy story and I do not want to accidentally get pregnant, right? Like, I would like hear Mary's stories and start panicking. And I never understood until kind of this go around of what was so hard about Mary. And what I think for me personally is difficult is that Mary, when I read Mary's song, she doesn't feel real, right? Because I'm like, this is a 14 year old who's not sure she's gonna end up with her husband and she's just excited, that's it. Like she's just stoked and then she's going to go to her cousin Elizabeth who's really old and having a baby cuz everybody's old in the Bible having a baby and then like we're going to be okay and then oh now she's going to have the baby. Like it's just never made sense to me. And I think that what I was missing truly this whole time is the perspective that it's possible that Mary is telling this story differently after Jesus has died and this is her son's obituary. Like, this is the thing that she desperately wants you to know about him. She desperately wants you to remember how amazing he was. She desperately wants you to know that he died for a reason. Right? If you've lost someone, you can relate to just desperately wanting it to make sense. I don't know uh, if you ever listen to a song one way, and then it sounds really different when you go back to it. Uh, but Kurt and I were reflecting this week about Taylor Swift. So Taylor Swift's birthday, I actually think, is in a couple of weeks. Maybe this week, actually. Someone would know better than me. But Taylor and I are similar age. Fun fact. And so I've done a lot of, like, my heartbreak and breakups. Taylor, like, really hit the spot for me on some of those things. Like, she really understood my breakup life. And, like, I feel like when she turned 22, I turned 22. And there's a song all about being 22. So all that to say, Taylor and I have really hit each other's anthems through the years. Like, really... <laughs> Really love Taylor. So all that to say, in 2012, there was an album that was called Red that came out that Crispin also really loved, so I'm going to look right at you if no one else is going to nod at me. Uh, Red came out, and there's this song that's called Everything Has Changed. 
And I like deeply remember listening to it. I was post-breakup. I had just moved from California to Oregon. Everything had literally changed. And I remember like driving in my car like, oh, everything has changed, you know, like just weeping with Taylor. Like really needed her to sing that song to me. And she just re-released Red very recently and like reworked some of the lyrics, which someone else could tell you more about. And I re-listened to the song, Everything Has Changed, and the song meant something completely different to me. Because it's totally a breakup song, right? And I can very much remember that breakup and that season in my life. But also, when I hear that song now, I think about my dad, my dad who passed away in 2019. And I think about my life today, being a mom, my dad didn't know that I was pregnant or having kids, like I wasn't pregnant at the time when we lost him, right? And I think about how different my life literally looks today. I identify with everything has changed, right? And so now I listen to this song and I can remember that breakup story that I had. And I also am very aware of what the song means to me today with my dad. But see how we can take a song and it can mean one thing then, and it doesn't necessarily completely take a different form or shape. It's still the lyrics that exist, but it can mean something different to me. And that's what I think Mary's song is. I think it is very possible that it is something that occurred with the excitement and having a baby and the joy and all of those things. And then when her son has died, she's retelling that story with the grief and the loss that it's encompassing someone that she wants you to remember. I think it gives more life and more depth to this story in ways that is hard for me to fathom. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about how narratives change, right? And actually, Lori and I were just talking about Mars Hill podcast as well. I don't know if you've listened to this podcast, but it talks specifically about how church planters change their story, a really specific church planter. His name's Mark Driscoll. And as someone that identifies as a church planter, I gotta tell you, it's like triggering for me because I've told Kurt that I'm terrified of being Mark, who, depending on where you are in your life, the story around why you started a church and the significance that it had, it changes for him in the podcast. And something that I think Kurt and I've had to think a lot about is like, why is that? Right? And a point that I think is really important about Mark's story is that it does totally change, and I don't want to be Mark Driscoll for many reasons. However, I think what is happening is that as it evolves and change, that that's an important part of his story as well. Right? I think as this evolves and changes for Mary of what the significance of Jesus' death is going to be, that that's an important part of the evolution of who she is. And for me, when I think about a Mary that's capable of grieving, I like blows my mind. I was thinking this week about how the disciples couldn't really take care of Mary. Where they're like, you're the mom that's just lost a child. And then like your son's like BFFs are like piecing out and are gone. And now Mary's supposed to be taking care of them. But what she could really use is like someone taking care of her. Right? I was thinking about like when Mary's going through it, like does someone make Mary dinner? Or did Mary just, like, keep moving on? Because we don't hear a lot about Joseph, right? He's not, like, an important part of that story. It's all about Mary. Right? I was thinking about, I bet that people said really terrible theological statements to Mary as well. I bet people said, like, oh, but at least he's not hurting anymore. Or, you know, but he died for a good cause. Like, there are things that people say to you in grief that people never say other places. But because I think as a church and as a collective humanity, we don't know how to talk about death 
or what comes after death. We just start like grabbing for crazy statements that come out and all of a sudden it's like, that didn't feel good when you're the person on the receiving side of that grief. And so that's what I want to look at. I want to look at the possibility that Mary is going to be an example of how we can grow with grief. Uh, I've been thinking about holidays and grief from like the weeks from Thanksgiving to Christmas. If you've lost someone, these are like an incredibly hard few weeks. And I'm going to speak for me, uh, who's done a lot of loss in the last two years. Like these are triggering and painful weeks as we come in with holidays and begin to notice who isn't here this year. Right? And so I just like, I think for me to talk about grief, I have to tell you kind of like who died. Right, so uh, Thanksgiving in 2019, 2018, there we go, yeah. I had, like, my last Thanksgiving with my dad, who had brain cancer, uh, and then he wasn't supposed to die at that point. And then kind of Christmas happened, and we began to realize there were some things that weren't kind of starting to add up. Um, early January, I sit in a room with my dad as a child, and hear that um, my dad is going to go on hospice, which I don't know if you sat with doctors who basically say to you, like, there's no more options. But if you sat in that room, when you process how terrible what's about to happen to you, like, I, I was having this, like, weird out-of-body moment. I remember it vividly of looking at the doctor and being like, you're telling me there's no other things you can do, right? And uh, kind of, like, double on that grief, uh, Zach and I were planning on having, like, this last hurrah before having kids. Uh, and going to New Zealand for a month. We had, like, saved and saved and saved and planned this trip, and I was supposed to leave Feb 1. And I remember sitting in that room and thinking, I'm not going to New Zealand. Like, I'm going to have to walk through my dad dying. And that's a really crummy thing to realize in kind of a really quick second. So March 2019, uh, my dad passes away. Uh, I think it's a week and a half later, COVID, like, we go into lockdown which grief and then like not collective grief is an even worse form of grief if you've ever just like been put into a room by yourself and like told to kind of figure this out. Uh, I think it's like a week after that we put my dog down because he is sick, uh, like my longtime dog. And uh, then to keep the story moving, uh, grandpa passes away December, uh, yeah, December 28th. He passes away, and then a, like a few weeks later, when I'm actually on a Cascade Zoom call, my step-grandmother passes away as well. And so if that wasn't enough, like, takeout food and, like, coffee and, like, self-care conversations with my therapist, um, my therapist got into a car accident in May um, and passes. So if you want to talk about grief with me, uh, I don't know how to talk to you about COVID without talking about death of, like, really personal people. And uh, when I lost Lori, uh, Lori and I had been together working for eight years, who was my therapist. And um, she had done Cascade starting, me getting married, having a child, like literally every significant transition of my life up to that point had happened with Lori. And so I think the day after I figured out that Lori had passed, I just was so over it. Like, I think for me, that was the one that, like, I stopped numbing out, and I started to just lose it. Like, I went on a walk with my dog, and I remember just bawling, like, on a pretty public space, which was decently embarrassing, with, like, Kinsley in the stroller and my dog, and just, like, I could not hide the grief anymore. 
right? It's like not comfortable to tell you this story because I'm still in it, right? And so what I want to hit on with grief is like we think that grief is going to be like these nice straight lines, right? Like we want grief to be like pretty and like make it make sense and it to be like delicate and like lovely. But we know that grief is not that way, right? Grief is crazy. Like some days it's really good day, some days it's really bad day. And that's just like how it works and intermingles. Right, I remember one time uh, sitting with Lori because Lori saw me um, in person like through lockdown because I had just lost my dad. So I was like one of the only people she would see in person, which was like a huge gift to me through that period of time. I remember sitting with her and being like, yeah, Lori, you know, I feel like I'm doing pretty good. Like I think I've moved from like my anger to like maybe my denial or maybe I'm numbing, but like I'm moving right on the chart. And I actually think this season's done, we're in a new season. And I remember her showing me this chart and being like, oh, Sarah, like, like you're, you're not anywhere close. Like, this is something that's going to be with you for the rest of your life. You're just going to figure out how to start talking about it in new ways. And so that's what I think is so important. I think in church, we've taught people that, like, grief is supposed to shrink, Right? That because this is my second Christmas without my dad, I'm supposed to be able to talk to you about my dad easily. But to be honest, this morning, I was totally re-triggered. Like, I was like, I don't know that I can actually tell you the story of my dad because it's still so hard to tell this story. Right? Because we want grief to be something that's going to get smaller. If you look at this image, right, this is what specifically the top line, I think, is what we've done in church. Like, you're two years past your dad. Jesus, you know, he's with Jesus. It's fine right? And that's such a simplification of grief. And I actually think that doesn't do justice to Mary, who is grieving her child. I think it simplifies what this is, right? Because I think instead what happens when we grieve is it's something that we have to grow with, right? Many people contacted me after my dad died, which is lovely, so kind. And that happened for like maybe a few weeks. But the reality is, is that I'm still sitting at a table where my dad is not there, I'm not over it. And I'm trying to bring people back to a story that was incredibly significant to me so that I can remember someone that I deeply love who has sat in this room, in this space, and been with us, right? And so I think that my invitation to you this morning is how can we as a church, and as we reimagine what it looks like to do Christmas and to understand Mary's song, how can we allow space and room for individuals to grow with grief instead of being told to shrink their grief? What does it look like to actually stand alongside people when they're incredible hurt and pain and be right next to them instead of asking them to go into a corner because we don't know what to do with them anymore? What would it look like for us to know each other's names of the individuals that we need to talk about? Because I'm not the only person in this room that's lost someone. Right? I know that. I just know my story. Right? And what's so funny is after you've lost someone, you think like, oh yeah, I'm going to be better at doing grief with other people. And then it's amazing. You forget how crummy those first few months are after you've lost someone. Like you can't even begin to get yourself above water. There's just months of my life I don't remember. If it's because we forget so quickly, because we so badly want people to have their uh, grief shrink. So here's my challenge, my thought, moving forward, moving into Christmas. Uh, Ashley and I were chatting about what would it look like to hold grief at Cascade in a collective manner. 
Because when you've lost people and when that's happened, right, you desperately want someone to know that you're not so alone. You desperately want someone to meet you in that pain and that hurt. And so we kind of started to like brainstorm and think about different ideas of like, how would you do that? Maybe that's a class, maybe that's this. And we just realized like, we just wanted to light a candle, right? We just wanted to light a candle and be able to say, you're not alone. We see your people that aren't here. We realize that we're still in a global pandemic. That's got a whole nother layer of grief and loss wrapped up in it, right? There's a loss of dreams, a loss of things we thought, a loss of jobs maybe looking what we thought they'd look, whatever that is for you. Our desire is that we would light a candle as an invitation as a church that we could make space. I'm challenging you to say the thing when it's uncomfortable <laughs> to talk about grief and not to diminish someone's grief by saying something like, oh, they're in a better place with Jesus or something like that. And kind of on the flip side, in more of a church space like this, actually my challenge would be, don't tell me that heaven's not real because that's going to make me feel better, right? Like, tell me or ask me in a consensual conversation, what do I need for my grief today? And probably I'll be able to tell you what kind of form of God I'm comfortable with, but don't force something on me, right? And that's what I'm interested in. I'm not looking in someone forcing theology down the other person. I'm looking for someone that recognizes who Mary is, Mary is a mother who lost her child. That's a really important part of this story. And I'm asking permission to create space because we created Christianity around a memorial for someone, right? The, the actual DNA of Christianity is to be comfortable with loss. It's answering the question of what comes after life. And one of the answers that people have moved with, right, is that Jesus died for your sins. That's to me gives me a lot of empathy is that's like a memorial for Jesus of a mother wanting us to know why it matters her kid died. I think that's pretty crummy theology is a very specific brand of theology but if I look at it from that lens it allows me to make space for another person where they are in their grief. So I'm going to invite Ashley up. We're going to, um, Ashley wrote this liturgy about grief. She's done a lot of grief work. And actually, there's a photo that she posted around Thanksgiving of this entire conversation. Oh, Hannah, it's your big debut. Yeah. And uh, the desire being that we would leave room or space at the table for grief. So if you would stand, and how you do liturgies is the bolded words I'm going to invite you to collectively say if you feel comfortable and then the non-bolded Ashley is going to read. And we're going to grab you that microphone. And I just want to say, grief doesn't just mean somebody dying. There's a lot of different kinds of grief. Relationships, friendships, religion, home, jobs. And this is for you also. As we sit in the season of the holiday joy and cheer, may we recognize and acknowledge the loss and pain. As we sit around the table and tree with the ones we love, may we recognize and acknowledge the ones who are not there. As we sit around the table, oh sorry, as we continue with old and new traditions, may we recognize and acknowledge the ones that may be lost forever. As a community, we choose to stand with you in your grief, in your loss, in your hurt. As a community, we choose to sit 
with you in your grief, in your loss, and in your hurt. As a community, we see you in your grief, loss, and hurt, and we will do just that. Stand, sit, and see. As a community, we will try not to fix you. Rather, we will hold you up when you are so tired. As darkness comes, we stand with you in it. We will bring the light and be with you. May you feel loved and worthy enough to feel the feelings you need and find the space that you need to feel it. May we be the community that holds each other up in the darkest of moments. You can go ahead and grab a seat. My prayer and my hope for our community is in this Christmas season, not that we would be afraid to talk about death and dying or that we would be a community that would make space, but we would allow this to be a story that grows with grief, that we would continue to learn how to do that with one another.